IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of IB Talk, the global insurance podcast, and one that today has its eyes firmly set on International Women's Day. I'm your host, Paul Lucas, and yes, we are just days away from an event that's very close to our heart here at Insurance Business. Over the years, we've tried to shine the spotlight on the women in this industry through special reports like Elite Women and via our Women in Insurance events. And those of you who attended our Women in Insurance events in the Northern Hemisphere last year will remember well our keynote speaker, who virtually trekked with us from Chicago to San Francisco to Toronto to London and many other locations. She's a public speaker and confidence builder and the author of the Hey Ladies Stop Apologizing book and workbook, Professor Maya. Uh, Maya, welcome to YB Talk. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. Uh, so Maya, I, I want to talk to you about getting women off that apology train shortly, um, but let's start with you. Um, you graduated with a, a PhD in sociology back in 2014, I believe, and, and you were focused um, on the sociology of, of women's health. Tell us where you got the inspiration from to, to make that your focus. Well, to answer that question, I'd have to backtrack to my master's. I've never believed in that advice of just follow your passion. I always thought that was really misguided because how in the world do you know what you are passionate about unless you have put in those dedicated hundreds upon hundreds of hours to figure out if you are passionate. So my entire career has revolved around, am I curious? Am I curious about this? And I was a hospice volunteer for 10 years. I worked in the field of death and dying. And I would go once a week to somebody's home who had less than six months to live. And I took care of them once a week for a four hour shift. And I did that for 10 years. And I did my master's thesis on that. Then I got into the PhD and I met with the leading expert on death and dying. And I sat in her office and it was filled with books from floor to ceiling on death and dying. And I remember in an instant thinking, I'm done. I think I'm done with this subject. I was no longer curious about it. And she said to me, if you want to do your PhD on this, you have to absolutely be interested, genuinely interested in the material to do this for another five years. And I thought, "Mm, I've already been doing it for 10. I'm done. And so immediately I switched to, okay, well, what else am I interested in? I was always interested in nutrition. So during the PhD, I I took an additional um, program and I became a holistic nutritionist. It was a two-year program that I took simultaneously and I became interested in uh, women's food advertising. And so that's what I ended up focusing my PhD on. I looked at women's high cholesterol and food advertising. And and you're still working in this area right now, is that right? Because I mean, you're teaching sociology of health. Yes, that is my absolute favorite course, the Sociology of Health and Illness, because it's such a wide ranging course. We discuss all the different factors that influence people's mental, physical, emotional health. So we're we're delving into topics like mental health issues such as perfectionism and confidence, multitasking and the brain, anxiety and student life. We look at indigenous health, racism in health, uh, the diet industry, fat stigma, fat discrimination, the celebrity influence on our health, 
period poverty, LGBTQ plus health. It's so wide ranging. So yes, I've, I've been teaching that course uh, for a long time and I still teach part-time at McMaster University in Ontario. Yeah, and, and in terms of what you're perhaps, you know, almost becoming famous for in a, in a lot of ways in terms of your your speaking and so on is what's been connected to your to your book and everything like that and i believe you know it was at that point where you were sort of wondering what you know career would be for you that you had a little bit of a, a breakthrough that sort of took you down this path um, at an academic conference can you shed a little light on that for us sure it was such an ordinary moment. It was such a, a typical moment of attending a conference, being in the audience, listening to different speakers, and it completely changed the trajectory of my career and my research and my life. And I was, I was in the audience. There was 500 of us sitting there listening to a panel, a panel discussion of four highly distinguished um, women who were all experts in their chosen field. And one after another, they had this, um, they were deflecting praise and minimizing their accomplishments. And I, I'll never forget it. Uh, it was as if it happened in slow motion. And the first woman got, um, got up to introduce herself. And she said, I can't believe you asked me. You asked me to speak on such a distinguished panel. I don't know what I could possibly add. And I remember thinking, what mm -hmm. is happening? You've written 12 books. What do you mean you don't know what, why you're at this panel? And then the second woman immediately fed off that energy. And she was like, oh my gosh, I know. I thought they sent the email invite to the wrong person. And I, I remember looking to the person who was sitting uh, to my left and to my right. And I said, did you just hear that? Did you hear what she just said? And over the course of that five-day conference, I probably attended maybe 25 or 30 of these panel-type discussions. And every single time a woman took a microphone, she minimized herself. She deflected praise. Um, she spoke with an apologetic tone. And I found it so enraging and bewildering and heartbreaking. I wanted to I wanted to shake these women and say, no, stop it. And then I want to immediately hug them and say, it's okay. I know why this is happening. <laughs> We're gonna get through this together. <laughs> but, but it was it was so I had so many aha moments because as it was happening, I immediately thought back to my undergrad students. I teach third year undergrad and I realized, oh, they do the same thing. And here's women at the pinnacle of their careers. So uh, it, it was all of us, regardless of experience or age or industry, it was all of us. So along with those very real structural systemic barriers that women encounter, such as sexism and ageism and racism and all the biases, we were absolutely, and we do battle very real internal barriers of self-doubt. And then it was from that moment that that was it for me. Uh, that's what changed everything. And then I just became obsessed with apologies and women's confidence. And, and what gave you the confidence, by the way, to, to think, I can change this? What made you think that you could be that person? <laughs> I was curious. That's what it was. That's what it honestly was. I wanted to know as much as I possibly could about 
why women were apologizing, how it made them feel, what was up with all the deflection of praise and all this humbleness that was spoken about as a virtue. And then I just I thought, well, let me see if I'm if I'm the only one. And I just put it out there and I started doing talks and talking to women about it. And after every single one of these talks, there would be a lineup of women waiting to talk to me afterwards. And they would all say the same thing. They would say, I thought you were talking directly to me. I thought you were in my mind. I thought, how how does she know exactly how I'm feeling? And they all had such similar experiences that I thought, okay, I'm on to something. I've got to, I've got to dig deeper with this. And that that's really what snowballed it all. Yeah, and obviously it's 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 flown for you since. I, I will delve obviously more into the topic in, in just a moment. But looking at your career now, um, I mean, I know you, that you've you've done a TED talk, you've made TV appearances. Um, what would you pick out as as the highlight for you to date? It would actually be my failures. Uh, every time I've been rejected or heard the word no or failed in some way, I've had to pivot. So my hurdles and my failures along the way have forced me to forge my own path. I I made this career out of nothing. <laughs> you know, this this job that I had didn't exist 6 years ago. I sort of created it. I spoke it, to, it into existence. And I'll give you an example. When I applied to the masters, um I was promptly rejected. <laughs> they were like, no, 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 thank you. <laughs> and then I said, oh, well, that can't be right. I'll, I'll simply find out what I need to do to get into the master. So I booked an appointment with the chair and I said, I got rejected. What's what's wrong with my application? He said, raise your GPA, get more research experience. Okay, done. So I spent the next year doing that. I applied again to the master's hadn't learned my lesson. I kept applying <laughs> to a quantitative school that's very uh, statistics oriented. And I'm very much a qualitative researcher. I'm interested in people's stories. And I got rejected again, two years in a row. And uh, again, made another appointment with the chair. How can I get back in? And so I got into the master's on the third try, but I would have kept going if it had taken me six years. And there was a quote that sustained me from an entrepreneur, B. Smith, and I, I would repeat that to myself ad nauseum. And she said, I climbed a mountain of no's to get to my yes. And I, I, um, I lived by that quote. And then six weeks before graduating from the PhD, if you can imagine, my parents are immigrants. They come from Serbia. They came here to Canada with nothing. And here I was getting the highest degree of education possible. My parents were so proud of me. Six weeks away, I decide to go for a run outside at night. And I'm a runner. And I had uh, a half marathon coming up in two weeks. And I was feeling good, but I wasn't really concentrating on what was on the road. It was nighttime and I slipped on something in the road. And because I had my half marathon, I fell trying to protect my knees, if you can imagine, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> Not thinking, oh, shoot, the head, watch out for the head. So to make a long story short, I, um, I was out, right? I hit the pavement with a thud and a very lovely couple who were coming out of Starbucks heard 
the air come out of my lungs and they look back and they see me, a redhead, flat out on the road. And they, you know, they pull me off the, the ground, off the road and they call an ambulance. And lo and behold, I've done some damage to my jaw and I have a concussion. So now we're two weeks away from defending my PhD and it's an oral defense, right? So for two hours, you have to sit there and defend what you have been researching for five years. And my girlfriend, my colleague, Jessica comes to my house to help me prepare. And she says, tell me about who you interviewed. And you know what? I forgot. I I forgot what I had done. And so I remember seeing her eyes go huge and her thinking, oh my gosh, (laughs) you did this for five years. What do you mean you don't know who you interviewed? And then, so she was trying to throw me all these softball questions. Okay, well, tell me about your theory. I had forgotten. Mm -hmm. So I actually uh, sustained, you know, a a brain injury. I bruised my brain and I um, had major cognitive deficits. I couldn't walk for a few uh, weeks properly. I couldn't drive for months. Uh, and I was forgetting just basic words. So I had to take a medical leave of absence from the PhD two weeks before graduating. And I remember being in that office and he, the, the chair of the department, I was bawling. Cause, and he, and I remember him saying, my, I've seen brain injuries before you're going to make it. it. It you'll be back. You'll be back. So that, that then started like a two year journey of healing my brain. <laughs> so go ahead. It's an incre- incredible story. <laughs> yeah. So I was under the care of every, everybody that you can imagine, um, a neurologist a neuropsychologist, um, an oral surgeon because of the damage that I had done to my jaw. Um, and it wasn't getting better. And I, I had done everything, uh, an MRI, a casket, like all of it. And um, there was no bleeding in the brain and nobody could answer why I wasn't getting better. And um, it was a long journey to heal my brain. And finally, I was able to go back into the program, complete the oral defense and get the PhD. So. I, I, looking back over my career, the TED talk, right? The TED experience changed my career in a really fundamental way. It jumpstarted it, if you will. But it was the culmination of a lot of little steps that I made over the course of three to five years prior to that, um, that set the stage for me being able to do the TED. So I don't know how much detail you wanted to get into that, but... Yeah, no, that's that's great, and uh, it, it, it's amazing, isn't it? But I mean, what do you think? Sort of, what what do you think was inside you that allowed you to kind of bounce back? Because you know, you've you've heard no, like you said, so many times to to, to getting on this this course in the first place, and then you've had this horrific injury, and you know. It, for a lot of people, I'm sure at that point they would have, you know, thrown in the towel and said, "Okay, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm just going to do something else or this, uh, you know, try and have live an easy life if you want." Um, but obviously, you didn't do that. You you sort of you've powered through. You found a way to kind of conquer that. So, what is it that you know is inside you that? And I don't know. Is is this something that you can can teach to to other women as well? <laughs> um, what do you think was was the reason how you were able to to bounce back? 
a lot of a lot of different things. One was my sense of coherence. I have always uh, that I've always had a strong sense that things will work out well for me that things that have happened in my life happen for a reason that there was an order to things and that's always been an internal sense that i have had and so why have i had that because i've had situations in my life with uh, i had a strong um upbringing um my a strong social support network so when i got this concussion uh, my husband took two weeks off work. Not a lot of people can have a partner just take two weeks off work. We were able to do that. My parents live five minutes up the street. Uh, at the time, I think my daughter was 18 months. I couldn't take care of her because I was developing vertigo. I couldn't hold her properly. I couldn't change her diaper. So immediately my dad came over. He was taking care of her. My mom was uh, cooking for me. Uh, they just came in and provided that social support. Um, and then, and then it was, it was <laughs> the neuropsychologist told me, I saw, I saw the preeminent concussion specialist in Ontario and she, after our neuropsych exam, I said, okay, tell me, just give me like two, three steps. What do I need to do? What do I need to read? Who I need to talk to? Tell me how, how can I fix my brain? And she said to me, Maya, your schedule makes me feel lazy <laughs> and I'm not lazy. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> She's the preeminent concussion specialist telling me that my schedule has too many things on it. And I said, okay, well, what do I need to do? And she said, you need to decrease your stress and bring in the joy. And I said, well, I don't know about that. Give me something else. <laughs> and... <laughs> And she said, no, that's really it. Like you can, you can walk yourself or, you know, in circles about this, but this is what you need to do. And I was quite arrogant and thinking, you know, I'll, I know how to heal myself better. It, it probably took me nine months to follow her advice, which was quite honestly, uh, well, I... decrease the stress, which is something that all women are going through, certainly with the pandemic, right? As our, um, the boundaries between our work life and our home life have completely blurred. Uh, you know, here we are homeschooling, teaching, doing virtual school, cooking and cleaning and working and doing everything all within uh, the corners of our, our, our home. And so the advice that she gave me still stands. And it is, where can you decrease your stress? I read this great book by an author, what's her name? Tiffany uh, Dufu, and it's called Drop the Ball. And she really wanted to change our understanding of the phrase drop the ball, right? When you hear that, it, it usually means you've done something wrong, right? You haven't fulfilled your, your job or your responsibility. You've dropped the ball. And she wants to reframe it for women in terms of, what can you let go of in your mm -hmm. life in order to prioritize the people and the experiences that you need to? So what are you going to drop the ball on? And that's something that I have to continuously remind myself of. I cannot do it all. I cannot do it on my own. So where am I going to drop the ball? 
you know, I think it's a that's a, a lesson so many of us can learn um, and, and increase in the joy in our life as well. It's 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 so important, isn't it? Um, just to, to, to sort of move us back to on, on the sort of the, the apology theme, if you want, um, mm-hmm. can I, let, let me ask you, what, what do you think sort of makes women fall into this trap of you know, deflecting praise and, and over apologizing for so many unnecessary things? So it's a lot. It's a lot of different things that stem from early childhood experiences around how you were parented? Did you grow up with overly critical parents? Did you grow up uh, having perfectionist expectations upon yourself? Did you grow up being constantly compared to uh, another sibling who was better at a subject matter than you were? Did you experience any type of discrimination in school? Were you bullied in school? Then it gets to what about work experiences? Did you or do you work for a company or an industry or organization that is highly competitive or adversarial? Uh, Is your work critiqued on a public stage? All of that. And then you're adding in um, discrimination, ageism, sexism, racism, and all of that can make us doubt ourselves. You know, oftentimes we hear that women just need to lean in. If women just lean in more to their careers, everything would sort of Uh, have this trickle-down effect of confidence and success. And women, (laughs) women don't, women are not leaning into their careers because of a lack of confidence. Their confidence is killed because of all of the things that I've mentioned, toxic workplaces, toxic bosses, toxic industries, biases, discrimination, sexism, and all of that, that hurts our confidence. And then we still have to pull from the depths of our resilience and our grit in order to continue going into these male-dominated industries and showing up even when we are talked over or mansplained or interrupted or not taken seriously. And then we have to continuously do that day after day after day. <laughs> I could talk about that for like 20 minutes straight. Uh, so yes, <laughs> yes, we apologize more than men, right? There is a gender, there are gender differences around that, right? And and we know that um, men have a higher threshold of what they consider to be an apology worthy moment. And women have a lower threshold. Hence, we're constantly throwing out apologies for really minor things. There's also gender differences Mm -hmm. in uh, the imposter syndrome, right? The original researchers wanted to call it the imposter experience because that's how widely experienced it is, that we all battle with these feelings of self-doubt, regardless of gender or age or experience or industry. Almost 70% of us will have these feelings of self-doubt at some point in our lives. The difference is it. The difference is that men internalize their successes and they externalize their mistakes and women do the opposite. So men tend to overestimate their skills and accomplishments while women simultaneously underestimate them. And that's in general, right? Not every man will have an overabundance of confidence and not every woman lacks confidence, but this is just in general what the research is showing. 
Sure. And, but I imagine there are some people listening and, and maybe these are, you know, some some of the people who, who might be lacking in confidence, who, who might be thinking, well, come on, surely there are some times when apologizing is, is the right thing um, to do. Um, I'm sure there are cases where, where, where that's true, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think that's some type of... Um a misunderstanding about my research and what I do that so many people think I want to eradicate (laughs) apologies from our lexicon. And that's not at all it. I want to bring attention to how often and for what reason are we saying sorry so often in our communication styles. I also want to bring attention to how does it make you feel? In my study right now, and two years into a global study on women's confidence, I ask women, When you have given an apology, a genuine apology for something, you did something wrong, you owned up to it, and you apologized, how did that genuine apology make you feel? You know what they say? They say, "Um, I feel bad that I had to apologize for something, but I feel good for having taken responsibility. I feel good that I was able to own my mistake and that there could be closure. Now we can move forward. I feel lighter. I feel better. Fantastic. Awesome. Now, how do you feel after you have said sorry for all those unneeded, unnecessary, minor situations? And they all say the same thing. I feel silly. I feel stupid. I feel deflated. I feel irritated at myself. And so there's a very real difference in how we feel. And so I am not at all worried that we are going to swing the pendulum from over-apologizing to never taking responsibility. That's never going to happen <laughs> for women. I just want to, I, I want women to have a more confident um, communication style. Sure. And at least there's something that, you know, that, that we can do to, 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 to raise our, our self-esteem in, in some way and, 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 to, and to be more confident. Um, because I imagine it's, it's easy to think, well, you know, I, I'm going to listen to Maya's advice, but it's, it's <laughs> perhaps more difficult to put it into to practice. So you know, are there any sort of tips that you can give to help guide people to, to be more conscious of that and to, to boost their self-esteem? Yes. So confidence is a muscle. It is a muscle that strengthens with use. And every single day we make hundreds of micro decisions that either lift us up or deflate us. And so many people believe that confidence is a feeling, that they must feel confident before they do something before they apply for that job, they ask for that promotion, they have that difficult conversation, when in actuality, it is the complete opposite. Confidence is an action. So you must take an action on a regular basis, on a continuous basis, and the feelings of confidence come later. And so it's Sorry, I was going to say, can you give us an an example of of what sort of actions you're talking about? Sure. So it depends on what areas you want to get better at. So if it's public speaking, for instance, that still uh, is one of the top three fears for most people worldwide. And so what uh, action can you take that is a low risk environment where you can take a small step? 
So right now we're living in a virtual world. How can you speak up on Zoom, right? So can you ask a question in every single meeting? Can you uh, offer your opinion on something? Can you offer to lead a discussion, uh, to be the group lead on a webinar? It's just, it's those little things that if we do it on a regular basis, it can then, um, it will grow our confidence because then we can pull from the well of experience of having been in those situations. You know, in my study, when I ask women, what makes them feel confident? Um, or the, or the women who have confidence, who haven't struggled with self-doubt, or maybe they did, but they've got it back. They're not relying on osmosis. They're not relying on hanging out with confident people, reading one book or listening to one podcast. They have given me a litany of things that they do on a regular basis to boost their confidence. So it can start with something as simple, and this has been a really common theme in, in the study, so many women have spoken about how at the beginning of the pandemic, they were in sweats. Um, they weren't doing, they were dressing up like they normally would to go to work and how just making that minor change, just dressing up in their work clothes, even though they were at home, made them feel a little bit better. So for every person, it's different. You know, are, are, is it exercise? Is it yoga? Is it meditation? Is it uh, getting outside, walking in nature? Is it reading? Is it gaining more knowledge? So shedding ignorance in certain areas of your life? How can you learn more about a topic? It's all of those things being done on a regular basis. Well, there's a lot of research that backs up uh, in the area of, of self-compassion. You know, if anybody's out there and they want to learn more about this, read Anything You Can by Dr. Kristen Neff. Um, she's the leading expert on self-compassion. So um, journaling. How are you, how are you acknowledging your successes and reminding yourself of your accomplishments? If we can't do that, how are we then pulling from that experience when we are in those situations of self-doubt? So writing, writing this stuff down, if you want like a very simple step uh, or, or tip, write down your accomplishments. Remind yourself of this when you're in, in feeling uh, doubtful. Second would be a gratitude journal. We, there's been over 2,000 studies done on self-compassion. I'll give you just one example. Uh, military vets with active combat duty history who have been trained in self-compassion have lower rates of PTSD. What are they doing? One of the things that they were trained in is gratitude journaling. Three to five minutes at night or in the morning, whatever's your preference, you write down a handful of things that you are grateful for, very specific things. And you do that every single day and then you reread those. And over time, as you build this practice into a habit, it changes. It changes your mindset. It changes your behaviors. It changes your thoughts. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. And uh, Maya, when when you're not working, speaking, inspiring, um, tell us what you like to to get up to in in your spare time. How how do you relax? Oh, um, I love to eat copious amounts of candy 
and <laughs> and watch my my favorite brand is Haribo Candy, and I will um, eat copious amounts, and then I will not feel so well, and then I'll forget about that, and then I'll continue eating <laughs> more candy. So I'll do that, and I will watch. Um, I love uh, the Great British Baking Show. And all okay. of the versions of that. I love to watch that. I love RuPaul's Drag Race. And I love stand-up comedy. I just watched a phenomenal one on Netflix. Michelle Buteau's comedy special called um, Welcome to uh, Utopia. Uh, so I love, I love watching stand-up comedy because I learn so much about performing from it. I learn about what happens when you lose an audience and a joke fails. How do you get them back? I learn about timing and facial expressions and all of that for my own public speaking. So that's what I love to do. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I see Netflix and excessive candy eating. We have a lot in common. Maya. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, do you, do you have any uh, plans for International Women's Day? Oh, I'm book solid. I'm a talk after talk after talk. That's what I'll be doing. It's it's the busiest month of the year for me for my talks and my webinars. So I'm I'll be giving talks on apologies and imposter syndrome and perfectionism and all of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure everybody listening completely understands why you're in, in high demand. Um, I'm extremely grateful for your time, Maya. Um, if anyone listening wants to, to learn more about you or, or get in touch, how can they reach out? So you can check out my website. That is professormaya.com. Maya is M-A-J-A. And if you want to learn more about my study, you can just go onto the website, click research, and then you'll see the study brochure right there. And if you would like to participate, you can give me um, an email, uh, reach out to me, and then we can set up a time and day to chat. So the study is a five-year study. I'm a, uh, about a year and a half into this study right now. I've interviewed 225 women across 20 countries. And we talk about confidence. We talk about apologies. We talk about how you handle praise and compliments and your mindset around your successes and failures. And they take place either like a regular phone call or Zoom or Teams and uh, it normally takes a few phone calls to get through the program. Or they can just uh, reach me on social media, and that's at Professor Maya. Fantastic. Maya, thank you very, very much again. Um, to everybody listening, and especially to our female listeners, uh, we wish you a wonderful International Women's Day. And we'll talk to you again next time on IB Talk. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.